hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Spider-Man Far From Home, and as usual, I'm joined by my friend and The Rewind's Marvel correspondent, Maya. Maya, glad to have you back so soon for another Marvel movie. Glad to be back so soon for another Marvel movie, because it means that it was a really short time since the last one. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. They actually kind of, like, release these all like, really close together with, like, what, Captain Marvel in March and then Endgame in April and then April. Spider-Man uh, Far From Home in July. It's, like, three and four months, and there's not going to be another one of these movies for a little bit, so it's interesting that they uh, decided to release them this way. But, you know, speaking of those other movies, you know, that was one of the big uh, things going into Spider-Man Far From Home, which is the second standalone Spider-Man movie since they rebooted it with uh, Tom Holland as Spider-Man also directed by John Watts and written by Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, but it takes place, I guess, at least, um, I don't know, a few months after what they're calling the blip in this movie, which we know is the snap from Avengers Infinity War, and the uh, the kids are, I don't I don't know if they're, they're on summer vacation, they're like somewhere in the school year, but they just get to take an tr- awesome European trip because that's the kind of school they go to. Uh, right? um, I, I would consider it part of a summer vacation. I mean, you can do sponsored school trips, you know, during the summer, so I'm, I'm assuming they're, they're doing a science trip. It's a science vacation. Okay, cool. I never got to be a part of those. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't go to a cool high school that took fun European trips. But that's what they're doing in this movie with uh, with Peter, his good friend Ned, uh, Betsy, played by Angry Rice, who we know from the previous movie, and Tony River always Flash. I, didn't, I don't even know if they give the guy a name, but he's this, uh, all upset. the same kids along with Zendaya's MJ, who uh, Peter now has just developed a big crush on, so he's concerned about that. He's trying to go back to being a normal kid after the crazy events of the last couple of Marvel movies, and he's very focused on that, but at the same time, uh, Nick Fury has other plans and really wants him to kind of get back into the game and help out with that, and uh, the movie is largely about him trying to navigate this uh, big, fun uh, class trip to Europe while also uh, not totally abandoning his uh, Avenger duties because Tony Stark, as, to a certain extent, the late Tony Stark, uh, wanted him to... Uh, yeah, as he, he, Peter was his protege, and he uh, left behind Edith, uh, who, the glasses that control a lot of Stark systems, and he's clearly entrusting Peter and uh, seeing a lot, through a lot of his superhero-type duties. So, uh Peter is largely torn about that. But before we get into the meat of this movie, Maya, I guess I want to ask you, you know, I think the most, uh, one of the most, th- one of the things I was most curious about going into this movie was just how it was going to do the heavy lifting of just like, just following up Endgame. It's just kind of odd, you know, it seems like it's fun, kind of funny to have a standalone movie like this technically uh, end a phase of the MCU, which I guess it is doing when, you know, Endgame by its very title, it seemed like it, it would have been a more fitting end to something. So I guess to a certain extent, this movie has the job of ending a phase, but also kind of sending us into the next phase of the MCU. So how, how do you think it ultimately, how, how effective do you think it ultimately was in uh, being its own movie, but also kind of trying to like have to serve a lot of roles as like a connector movie within this universe well so when you're sort of trying to structure um you know a proper send-off the denouement is not supposed to be you know as big as the as endgame so i like the way that they kind of start far from home in a bit of a comedic sense just sort of saying okay this is going to be a light fluffy movie to sort of counterbalance the the shitstorm that we gave you with endgame the heaviness of losing the person who started off the MCU in the first place, which is, you know, the incomparable Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark. And there's also a very wink, they, a very winking intro to the movie to do the have the opening credits over the Whitney Houston "I Will Always Love You." It's like kind of self-aware and funny. What better way to do it than to have a very badly edited high school version of an in memoriam that is also factually incorrect to what we know to be the truth, which is that, of course, Captain America is still alive, but it's a nice way to also add some cute little... um, that's literally my favorite part of the of Homecoming was just like watching them awkwardly do that TV show. I don't know why. I just got such it was a kick. Hilarious! Out of it. it was absolutely it was hilariously done. But it's like it's it's a good way to have those little you know features between the different actors. You know, like it's 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 subtle, but it's there. And so it kind of like I mean, Spider Man is supposed to be you know friendly. It's supposed to be a funny, happy movie. They they have always had the comic books act in that way. Even the animated series, you know, Spider-Man is making jokes the entire time. They're just so poorly done. And it's, it's done in a way to basically say, listen, this is, this is one of the original superheroes, you know, superheroes were supposed to bring joy to people throughout the United States during times of strife. Might as well do the same thing with, um, you know, carrying on the traditions with the new Spider-Man. So you have this 
this movie that's just automatically going to hit you in the face with comedy. And it does a really good job of carrying that throughout the rest of the movie because it doesn't do a proper send off to the third phase of the Marvel cinematic universe, whatever grand plan they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, as far as just like even following up the events of Endgame, like I keep hearing, I kept seeing a lot of critics talk about how they were like very impressed with how it addressed the logistics of the time travel. And I don't want to think too hard about the time travel again, but it's more specifically than the science is how it worked with the high school, you know, like, do these kids like pick up in the same grade where they left off? Are they like kind of joining up with all the same classmates they had before? Like if they've missed five years, but I guess they have an age five years. How do they do it when they're, are they dividing up the, how they're dividing up the classes after supposedly if it was randomly half the population was gone, at least half of their class was gone. And they try to explain that like in that, opening morning show and i'm gonna be honest i'm not totally sure i understood it but i don't would you like me to sort of bring it a little did you understand it oh yes i did okay essentially what they're basically saying is the blip happened five years later those kids ended up matriculating getting older and they had um that guy i want to say his name is ryan as an example um brad whoever brad thank you it's some very generic (laughs) frat boy name um, but so they had him as an example of somebody who blipped five years later and, um, you know, he still kind of hasn't come to terms with anything, but at the same time, the kids who came back, came back in the middle of the school year. And so in order to kind of phase things in properly, I'm assuming that this is six months post, you know, second blip, um, everybody has to sort of start from the beginning and they just need to sort of, um, get into like a, a new normal, but those kids that were their classmates who ended up staying behind are five years older. They're not part of the same system. They just ended up living and continuing on. Right. So, so, like, e- so like the kid that the Brad kid, that's like the other one kind of trying to get with uh, MJ. He, he was technically like, like in when the blip happened in the people in like, he was five years younger than Peter at that point, at that point, And now he's just no, in his no, grade. He was, he was in Peter's grade. And he's five years older now. And he did not come to terms with the fact that he never had a chance with MJ. Yeah, so but, he but, tried but, his hand a second time. But, but why, are, why are they in the same class, though, is what I don't get. They're not. But they're just on the same trip. Yep, I guess he volunteered as oh, a okay. That, that was I was confused about. I, I assumed that they were like in the same class and like in the nope. same grade. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's what was confusing me. I was like, why are they, why are they on the same class trip then? Nope, dude just just never never dealt with the situation, I guess. Gotcha. Okay. That's what I was that's what I was a little confused about. Hence playing up the comedy. They did a great job of playing up the comedy. Even the guy was saying that his wife pretended to blip and actually ran oh, off with like her yoga instructor for five years. No, that no, that yeah. So I, I they they certainly did a very good job of like uh, mining this movie for jokes and a lot of funny stuff while not losing sight of the fact that like something very very serious and sad had happened and they somehow well as most of the marvel movies do obviously struck a very good tone and uh, found plenty of spots to add in humor it helps when you add in jb smooth to the cast who is funny and just keeps uh, yes. getting afraid and talking about witches the whole time you can you can debate whether or not you should be giving aunt may more to do but it certainly was funny all the stuff with her and happy and, uh, and Martin Starr, sure. let's not forget our freaks and geeks, knight in shining armor, who somehow has made an amazing comedy career of himself. Yes. Uh, so he, he, he was he was in the previous movie, too, but uh, luckily got to stick around for this and uh, be the hapless uh, chaperone for this trip. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the movie did a pretty good job because, I mean, it's it's only two hours and ten minutes isn't super long for by Marvel movie standards. So it had a lot of work to do, though, to clean up all that other stuff, uh, but still, like, uh, not forget to be its own movie in and of itself. And I certainly think it does a good job of that, uh, thanks in large part to um, Mysterio, who uh, I think is a pretty unique villain by uh, any, any of the standards of a lot of these movies. Uh it's very unique in that they're having an actor of the caliber of Jake Gyllenhaal play him. I guess we should say we're, we're, we're spoiled. I'll, I'll put a tag on here. It's going to be spoilers throughout. I already called him a villain. It's too late. So <laughs> I, where I want to first ask you then as someone that was uh, no, 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 had a little more of a has a little more baseline knowledge of the comics and all that like I did going in. We we talked about it like uh, last time we spoke and you're like, yeah, there's like you'd see we'd seen the trailer for uh, Far From Home at that point. And we're like, yeah, how can he uh, 
like Mysterio can't be a good guy, even if that's what the trailer was trying to make it look like. So what was your expectation going to this movie for just how its plot was going to work based on the fact that it seemed like with the marketing, they were trying to like kind of hide the ball on Mysterio's true nature, but you already kind of knew what it was. Cause I, I kind of, I, I mean, I had never read these comics, but like I, I knew from what you and others had said, that like, yeah, he can't be a good guy. But at the same time, I thought maybe they're just going to like, I, and I'd heard, I'd seen things about a twist. So I thought, Oh, well maybe they're just going to like, make him a good guy throughout but all of a sudden he'll be the bad guy at the end and then he'll be the bad guy for all of the next movie or something so uh what were your expectations for how they were going to handle that were you kind of worried that they were going to like make you think he was a good guy for too much of the movie which would just be kind of silly given what you know about him so um so you kind of hit a good point saying that um a lot of the comic book readers were going to be spoiled at the fact that um mysterio was going to be a villain and i definitely was one of them i mean you don't have a, a dude with a fishbowl on his head and you know cape and have it not be a villain <laughs> um but it, truthfully speaking though the execution of it was what was impressive so i actually was um, completely surprised with how they did it um i thought that he was going to be bringing about the sinister six which is known as a very you know popular adversary for spider-man and i was really excited about that i'm like cool spider-man has something to sort of you know, live up to, but they definitely played upon the fact that, you know, Peter Parker is still very young, that he has a lot to learn and he has a lot of growth and that it, it will be very beneficial for him to use maybe either a role model or to just, you know, start deciding whether or not he was going to be um, living as a kid or he's going to really undertake his role as an adventure. So of course, and, you know, you did say that this was a spoiler tag. Of course, at the end of the day, when the entire plot line is revolving around getting revenge for the way that Tony Stark treated his employees, mm -hmm. I, I just thought it was a very fitting way to sort of close out this phase because, you know, what Tony Stark clearly is very much an impression on Peter Parker. He is, is like, you know, his image and his homage is shown throughout the entirety of the movie, even just from the way that, they open up the film and you, you have to give him that credit that he just made such an impact that he's even going to impact people who are going to have some form of animosity towards him. So when they ended up uncovering that the reason why, um, Quentin Beck is so, um, so in need of vengeance against Tony Stark and wanting to get the Edith system is because Tony Stark ended up um, completely bashing his virtual reality system, and he renamed it. What was it like, Fart or something like Bart. that? I think it was Bart or something. Bart. Yeah, it something. was some very terrible acronym. It just marketed it terribly, and it, you know, it was, it was a kind of a cool callback because we see that I think at the beginning of Civil War, right? We, that, that's where that scene is with the aged down uh, Robert Downey Jr. talking to his parents, I think, or I can't remember yes. who it is. Yeah, and I, I think it's the beginning of Civil War, or it's during Iron Man 2. I don't remember which one it is, no, it's more but they did that. a yeah. very yeah, they did a very, very good job with kind of adding in those characters and their importance in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It does a really good job of sort of good piecing everything together in a way that, you know, there are secondary characters that we don't see that end up having impacts in a butterfly effect towards what's going to happen to our characters. And we just don't give them enough credit. And in this case, it's, well, what would happen if those people really were pissed that they didn't get the credit for it? So I, I, I was very intrigued with the way that they ended up um, determining that plot line. Yeah, no, it's just another cool way of like them uh, being consistent and uh, setting things up really well, you know, like it, it's not dissimilar from what they did with uh, what, what, what I forgot. What's the name of the uh, Michael Keaton's character from the last one, Vulture? Or um, uh, I don't remember. Oh, honestly. yeah. Well, yeah. Well, Michael Keaton's villain in uh, Homecoming, you know, like was like the guy responsible for you know like uh, cleaning up a lot of the mess from like the events of the original Avengers movie and was yeah. like, uh, was kind of upset. I think what was it like when, I don't know if it was like automation might've taken some of those guys jobs or they just saw the destruction on the ground. And, uh, they were just somewhat affected by like Stark industries and what, what some of the, they would seen him do. So it's like, as much as we all love Tony, like a lot of his actions, um, were reckless yeah and i mean we obviously knew that from the events of uh ultron uh where the, the, 
Ultron itself Ultron was just was like great a, as a was, result of him, yeah. Right, but like I mean, it's 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 fun to remember that like it's not only massive screw ups like that, but uh, just some of his um, personality deficiencies uh, had other side effects too. And the movie and the movies just choose not to ignore that, which is very interesting. And I think it shows that like he can be more than one more than one thing at once, you know. Um, yeah. So that so it, it's it's just a, it's just a fairly interesting setup because I guess he's not. I, I I heard somewhere else like in the comics, uh, Mysterio is actually like a failed actor, right? As opposed to like a disgruntled Stark Industries employee. Oh no, that that the Stark Industries employee was a completely unique plotline that they yeah. created for this. Yeah. Yeah, that was brand new. And I also heard and... somewhere that some of the um some of the other people in his in his crew were like actually some of the extras like around that some of the other scenes I guess in Civil War or whatever. I think like they were even like went so detailed to that or they just like were that consistent where it's like hey a lot of these people were like people that were affected by that. So they really were like very detailed and thorough in how they like flesh this out. And, and like it really, it, like I said before, it kind of highlights the point that there are secondary people who sort of lead up to something that we don't give them the credit. And this is, it, and actually, it's it's kind of like a callback to the industry as a whole that when you're, um, you have these after credit scenes at the end of Marvel movies, and it sort of allows you to sort of pause and give, you know, the, the the appropriate time and the homage necessary to the people who actually went into making these movies. And seriously, you wouldn't be watching this movie if it wasn't for the people in the credit scene. Why don't you just stay and you just really give them like the the respect that they deserve? And that's why they end up um, creating those after credit scenes um, and making it so consistent in there because it does force you to sort of sit there and give those people you know, what they really truly deserve, which is their five seconds that they show up on the screen and somebody actually gets to see their name. And it's, it's, it is a weird little allegory, but it works so well because I can tell you that I did not see it coming. I thought that the execution was amazing. And to, to add on to that, the special effects that they used for those scenes where they're like the nightmarish, um, virtual reality scenes the elementals oh oh oh, 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 oh you no. mean oh no you mean the thing yeah yeah i got you i got you where he and like just, tracks him down it, through the building and stuff and yeah yeah I, it was really intense and you know what i i think that it was trippy it was trippy in a way that like i liked more so than like dr strange like they do a lot of interesting beautiful. visual stuff in dr strange i guess but it just wasn't interesting as interesting to watch as like this stuff was and how they pulled off that really long sequence where he's like part of uh, Mysterio's uh, script for lack of a better term involves uh, having fury appear to Peter like that whole entire sequence uh, through the end of uh, him just like getting hit by the train was like really really cool well, I mean, they, they sort of they highlighted in the beginning that his Peter Tingle wasn't working, which is, <laughs> of course, for those who don't know, it's a little bit of a quip towards his spidey senses. Mm-hmm. But I like that they called it the Peter Tingle. <laughs> I, I think that that could keep for a while. But um, I, I think that, you know, Spider-Man is still, he, he's in high school. He, he's young. He's hormonal. He's impressionable. His hero just died I, I mean, you have to admit that he is going to be going through a crisis of person and it's going to be asking a lot of him to sort of grow that quickly. And, you know, when Nick Fury is doing a very terrible job at sort of recognizing that he's a little bit tough on him and having Quentin Beck kind of come and swoop in there and sort of gaining his confidence and his trust is going to be Peter Parker's downfall because he just lost another role model. Might as well just start looking for the next one because he's 17 or so. He needs that. He's He doesn't have a dad around. And I think that it, it's frustrating to watch from the audience's perspective if you know that Mysterio is a villain, that you see him sort of playing into that plan and you see it just unfolding in a way that I was – my head was in my hand. I was screaming. I'm like, don't do that. Why are you doing right, because that? You, you, you could, a stupid kid. You could see how a lot of those things that he was saying to him would work on both Peter and even like convince Nick Fury that like, uh, that he's there for real. Like the whole, even the whole, the whole backstory about, uh, well, that's, that's another thing. He gives the whole backstory that really just like hammer at home. It's something that these people would believe based on all the crazy stuff where he's talking about multiple timelines and, or, or multiverses. Mul- multiverses. Yeah. Multiverses. What, sorry. Do, what do you think that ties into? 
What was I saying? Well, we did this. Well, yeah, I was going to say Spider-Verse podcast. Well, I was going to say, like, oh, well, I even started buying his story, too, because I was like, oh, yeah, Maya said that was going to be a possibility. We're going to have this multiverse and that multiverse and the animated one could even come into play. I was like, oh, yeah. So maybe we'll start to see some of the side effects of, like, all the different multiverses that came into that. And uh, so he even he even tricked me for a minute there with that with that with that story based on our discussions. And but it's funny because there's that. But like a lot of the other stuff he's saying, it's like. What if you told like a fourteen-year-old to like uh, to earnestly write a superhero movie? Like it seems like that th- those are the kind of lines he was like feeding them. Where I was like, I get why they would buy this. It sounds funny to me, and I kind of know that this guy's full of shit. So, I, so I kind I, I just kind of I, I got a kick out of that because I was like, this is exactly what someone want to say if he's trying to think of what someone would want to hear from a superhero. And so it was like you said, kind of like, uh, and like you want to put your face in your hands when you see them falling for it. But like I. It was kind of funny to think about it, like, oh, this seems like bad writing, but that's because it's like bad writing amongst his staff, but it's good enough for his purposes. But it's also very visually convincing, and they even went so far as to explain in very great detail how everything worked to perfection, how they were able to um, completely knock off Maria Hill and uh, Nick Fury and sort of have them convinced that this was actually happening. But you know what? At the same time, and we'll get into it later, the after credit scene offers a secondary explanation as to why they sort of bought into it. Well, all the visuals but, were all the visuals were um, were good. But I was, what, my one question about them was: so what happens in the first scene when they're in Venice? Those towers are getting getting knocked over, right? Because Peter's like having to hold them up. So if a lot of this is like that stuff supposed to be like CGI, like what caused the tower to actually get knocked over? No, it's not CGI. So the actual drones themselves are weaponized drones. So the drones are causing destruction but there's no elemental there oh so it makes it it masks it to seem like it's the elemental causing the destruction when it's actually the drones oh so it's like the drones are like i mean well so is is that so that actually is water that's getting shot up that's not part of the cgi it no, no, it is water that's getting shot up. It's not part of the CGI. There is water that's being shot up. The drones are causing the water to shoot up. Oh, okay. I didn't realize the drones could control water, so that's where I was confused. I was like... Well, I... they were causing pulses. Remember you at the end of the movie where they were showing pulses kind of coming up? Clearly, they're able to sort of maneuver that a little bit. Obviously, the science is a little bit, you know, wonky because it's, you know, it's hard to explain. And even Peter was like, we were there. I don't understand how this happened. But a good portion of it was very carefully choreographed on their part, but it was also um, it was done through the um, the virtual reality that they were creating. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I guess I didn't fully get the science of it, but that that does make sense. And really, I guess the the uh, Mysterio himself is like the one. I mean, it's a projection, I guess, more so than CGI. But it's like a. Um, it, it is a projection. That's right, the proper right. way to describe it. Right. Right. Um, no, I got you. And but he wasn't even there most of the time. He was actually like now that we, we were able to see in the final sequence he was actually off in a corner managing everything and he was just you know using the voiceovers but he wasn't flying around he wasn't he doesn't have that ability right so i want to i want to ask you about jake gyllenhaal then so what what did you think overall of just his performance it's it's it's, it is pretty it it is something new for like i mean like a lot of these actors that are involved in the marvel cinematic universe are like i mean they're really good actors but like almost not like you know like as classically like trained dramatic actors on the level of jake gyllenhaal that kind of have that long of a track record of doing like award-worthy work you know um aside from someone like robert downey jr i suppose so i mean it's funny to bring a guy like him in and then it looks like it's going to be like this one one kind of thing and then like they really let him like kind of go all out in the second half of the movie what what did you think of how he actually captured how you envisioned mysterio just being as a person so I think that um, the reason why a lot of people were sort of um, thinking that Mysterio could have also been a protagonist is because of the fact that Jake Gyllenhaal, typically speaking, does play a good guy. But there is two very, very apparent movies that he just completely nails a performance as the antihero. One of them is Donnie Darko, which is one of his most famous performances, where he just goes freaking ballistic. And he plays crazy very well. And the second performance, which is a little bit more subtle, but I think he really brought that in, is Nightcrawler, where he just plays kind of a deranged um, one. Yeah, journalist. he's not. A, he's not a protagonist in Nightcrawler. He's a bad dude. Yeah, I said no. And I'm saying the both that and Donnie Darko. He's an antihero. Okay. Yeah. And I think that the casting for Jake Gyllenhaal was so pristine in that he comes off 
as such like a trustworthy gentlemanly uh you know fatherly person but he's also knows how to turn that switch on to crazy very well. Yeah, he's like he just as evil as he's just as evil as Lou Bloom in Nightcrawler, but like has the capability of like actually putting on a veneer of a person that can like, you know, be like not like really super socially Sociable. awkward and weird. Yeah, yeah, and can actually like put on a friendly face for lack of a better term, which it makes him like all the more dangerous. And his range in this movie was really amazing. I mean, like the thing about Jake Gyllenhaal is. He is a very, very well-trained actor. I mean, he's actually currently on Broadway right now, so right. he is doing he is doing this press tour in the middle of an off-Broadway and then now a Broadway run. So if you think about that, this guy is not only classically trained, he's also he's a singer too. If you've never heard him sing, oh, I didn't Sunday know he was doing. Park I didn't actually George, know he was doing. I musicals. highly recommend it. Wow. Okay. Yeah, he, he was George in Sunday in the Park with George, and he was incredible. So the, the thing is, this guy is so such a big actor that the fact that they were able to like i'm not saying that they were able to get a big name but they were able to get away with kind of like um you you have to forget that you're watching jake gyllenhaal for a second and then you see him walking around looking all regal you're like oh this makes sense he's playing such an esteemed person he's playing such a good guy and then when they flip it around and the the veil comes down he started <laughs> plays that deranged version of quinton back i'm like that is why they cast him it is not for the good guy superhero look. It is for exactly that. And he even says, he's like, he even thought I was crazy. He even said I was crazy. <laughs> and I just looked at that and I'm like, this is an A plus. This is what's making the movie for me. It has nothing to do with Spider-Man coming to terms with the fact that he needs to choose whether or not he wants to be a kid or be an Avenger. It has nothing to do with Happy and Aunt May finally shacking up together. It has to do with Jake Gyllenhaal actually putting together a really complicated villain that you actually kind of tend to side with a little bit. Because if I had created an adventure that was my life's work and my boss, who I looked up to, called it barf for the humor of everything else, I would turn into a villain too. Hmm. No, yeah, I mean... It, it weirdly ends up being like a very current movie because you know we're entering this like very uh precarious time in politics where not only do we have like people that might just like believe anything they read or wave off things they don't want to read as fake news and he's like kind of he's like talking about trying to like warn about that kind of thing but like on on top of all that like uh you know there's even like warnings out there that like there's going to be technology where like a political candidate or someone like might be said to have said like something really messed up and it could have just like all been like fake so it's really funny that like th this is the kind of the route that this movie took and this guy is like i mean he has his own weird twisted motivations obviously he wants his own um he wants to, he wants to be recognized for being a genius and for being really smart and if he can get it through fake, faking the superhero and all the lucrative opportunities that I suppose come with that then uh, good for that then that that's what he's gonna do but he's like also spouting off all this like kind of crazy conspiracy conspiracy theory shit that's actually not like not like something crazy made up for a movie it's like actually like somewhat timely so it's 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 kind of funny to think about that in the terms of like this ridiculous looking character that wears like a a bowl on his head, like you said. <laughs> mm -hmm. And also, you know, they, they've done a really good job at sort of um, showing us a very decent path as to how Peter Parker could be swayed by this man. And watching the sequence where they're in the bar and he gives him the Edith system and he just very willingly swears it away, you're like, oh my God, Peter is such a, a child. He is clearly so immature. This would never fly with any of the other Avengers. And he just screws up so royally and plays right into him. And I think that it's just, it is a very big testament as to playing into if someone is vulnerable and they're going through a situation where they're hurt or they're dealing with loss and grief and somebody is going to, to uh, capitalize on that, they're going to get away with it. Unfortunately, like not a lot of people know how to deal with grief and deal with loss they might as well just they, they want to just slough it off and kind of heal themselves. So they, they did a good job at expressing those complex emotions, because while I was literally yelling at the movie screen for the fact that this kid was giving away a multi-billion dollar <laughs> weaponized system to a man that he met two days before, I still ended up 
you know, understanding where he was coming from. Yeah, like you said, like Jake, Jake does such a great performance in both halves of the movie that like you buy that Peter would buy that. So it's like not as almost not quite as unforgivable of a mistake as it would be otherwise. It really isn't. And like I have to marinate with it in order to sort of come to that conclusion. Yeah. So ultimately, like they end up, uh, I mean, they end up having it out like in the fight. But like, I mean, you know, like we, we, we pretty well just talked about everything that, you know, Mysterio goes through to even get there. But, you know, like I said, at the same time, he's having uh, Peter's having to deal with like the decision of whether or not to be an Avenger. But also like at the whole the whole all the while, like trying to like manage his double life throughout the course of this trip. What did you think about like the high school aspects of this movie? I thought it was adorable. I thought the the <laughs> the fleetingness of the high school relationship appealed to me so much when they had um, Ned's you know, ready for the bachelor part, the bachelor uh, the bachelor bachelor romp through Europe, and all of a sudden he's oh in a committed relationship. <laughs> with Ned and with Betty it was just so well done. It was so funny. They were that obnoxious couple that every single person wants to just smack in the face because of how much they post about each other on Instagram. And it, it just the comedic aspects of it were brilliant. I, I want to just like give a hug to the actor who plays Ned because man, did he do a good job Jacob at Mans- He I will give him a hug if I ever see him. And if he <laughs> listens to this podcast, I want him to know that there's a hug waiting for him in Miami. But <laughs> it, it was just the the it didn't need to happen. They didn't need to have that subplot, but they did, and it was very strong, and I liked it so much. And then I would kind of just want to watch like a Fast Times in Ridgemont High version of just like the kids from that high school. Oh, for sure. I mean, there, there, there are times where I'm just like kind of like waiting for them to get back to them. I'm a, I'm a very big fan of Angry Rice, who like kind of first came on the scene with the nice guys a few years ago playing uh, Ryan Gosling's daughter. But like she had like she was like really, really funny in uh, The Beguiled, which came out in, uh, I guess, in also in 2017 when she which had her first go around with this movie and she didn't do much in the first movie besides being my favorite part which was the fake uh morning show at the school so i was glad they gave her more to do even if it was just to like kind of be funny in this like fleeting romance that they had with ned that they that they quickly realized was that was, was not meant to be and were very mature about it uh, and self-aware more so than i think kids, kids, kids might, yeah more so than kids, uh, kids might normally be uh, and then you, and then the other uh, love triangle going on is with uh, this uh, Brad character who uh, had his own weird um, interactions with the blip and is now like super muscular and he wasn't before because the last time they saw him was five years earlier and he's along on this trip and has a ongoing uh, kind of little battle for MJ's affections with Peter and and Peter and MJ like are just like super awkward together but in a way that's like quite believable and. Uh, understandable for kids of that age. And and I think that at the same time, like, and I said it, I mean, I said it the first time that I watched the first Spider-Man movies, and Daya's casting as MJ was a lot better, and it marinated well over time, but it was a lot better than I expected it to be, because we're all expecting MJ to be this, like, super pretty, you know, dumb redhead who's like, oh, how do I know you're Spider-Man? What are you talking about? Whoa, you're Spider-Man? This is crazy. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, you have this very super bleak, um, esoteric. Perceptive. um, (laughs) Perceptive, but also like her voice. I just like her speaking voice, man. I don't know what it is about it, but this, this Zendaya's version of MJ, I like it. I think she is great for Peter because she has no bullshit. She even like says it in the scene where the drone is um, catching them through the Tower of London, which I loved kind of um, through the Crown Jewels collection. She's saying that she just says what she wants and she says the very blunt truth to a point because it makes her feel good to say it. And she just like makes her feel good to say the blunt truth and she has no idea why she says it. <laughs> but you know what? That kind of bold confidence and um, sort of self-starter behavior is what makes her so enjoyable to watch. And uh, not only in this movie, across every single thing I've seen her in. I mean, she's also in a new show on HBO and she's excellent. She's. Um, so you've, you've, I was going to ask if you'd watch Euphoria. I don't think this. I uh, just started. We have an explicit tag on this podcast, but I feel like it wouldn't suffice if we actually talked about the content of Euphoria. But I was just going to say that, like, if you like her voice, like she gives a pretty fun uh, narration throughout the series. So. Oh yeah, and if she if she there's something about her, man. I don't know. She is she is like magnetic. No, yeah, but for sure. her 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 version basically of 
Um, basically, bluntly telling Peter is like, yeah, you're Spider-Man. I noticed this the entire time. <laughs> I, you don't have to lie to me about it. We we figured it out. Right, and then and then and then kind of like uh, uh, bragging to Ned about how she figured it out. She didn't just like get told like, and she known for she known for a very long time, and because she's usually like. She, I mean, she's very dry, but like she was showing a, a bit more emotion and trying to uh, let everyone know how perceptive she was in that regard. And it was, it was funny, you know. Like I mean, I I, I don't know. It feels like there a lot of times when you have like awkward, um, like high school romance situations in movies, like they're so awkward that like I got to put like it's the kind of thing where you have to watch it through the cracks in your fingers because like it's, yes. it's, it's it's like so much secondhand embarrassment and like i didn't quite get that while they were still awkward though you know it was like they were charming enough and likable enough and it felt real it felt like relatable but not like overly done with the awkwardness and cringiness and so i, I just had a lot of fun watching it whereas sometimes like well, cringe exactly. comedy is just not my thing sometimes well i'll tell you exactly why it's because you know that they end up together it's kind of already set the stage it's you know right. not like we had five other movies before the new iteration of the spider-man movies that basically told you the same thing but mm-hmm. it was it was well done in the fact that you know they they danced around it and they danced around it in a really nice way and when they finally came to the point where she was able to admit to her feelings to him and he provides her with a broken version of the Black Dahlia necklace that he had originally gotten when he was in Venice. And you're able to sort of see it kind of comes off of like a little, like almost like a dragonfly, it looks like. Hmm. Um, and I think that it, the way that she says, no, no, I like it like this better, it just it sort of shows that they're, she's going to be consistently open to his crazy lifestyle because clearly this woman has some form of desire for something that is outside of the ordinary. And it, then that's why they, the reason why they balance each other is because she's not just going to lay down and, you know, be okay with him um, being a superhero because she has nothing better to add. It's the fact that she has so much to add. um, And she has a lot of, you know, insight on, you know, weird situations, I guess that it just, it makes for good comedy. Right, and like, and, and, and like, I guess her finding out about his identity, like, it was going to happen sooner or later in these movies, and I liked the way in which they did it here. Like, a th- like, a, like a trope in rom-coms or romance-type movies is, like, maybe someone standing someone else up for, like, a legitimately good reason, but then they have to get broken up over the whole thing. Not that they were a couple at this point in the movie, but, like, she, like there's a version of, like, uh, any kind of high school movie where, like, she just gets very mad at him for not coming back to sit with her at the opera or something like that. And right. I just didn't feel the need to have that kind of forced conflict in the movie. I liked that she was just, like, that's where she kind of dropped the bomb on him that she knew, and I was like, oh, this is a, cool, a better way to handle it, in my opinion, than to, like, have them, instead way. of to have her, like, be mad at him until the end of the movie and then just him profess his love at the end or something like i liked it better that way right but she's also the reason why he ends up finding out about quentin beck's plan in the whole first place because she ended up taking the one of the projectors and she she is literally the x factor in them uncovering this plan if it was not for her none of this would have happened it wasn't for her sleuthing None of it would have happened. So I'm very fine watching a Nancy Drew-esque version of MJ just trying to uncover shit throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think it would be great. Yeah. So what I want to ask you about now, though, is like uh, related to uh, someone knowing about Peter's identity is this uh, first mid credit sequence at the end of the movie because uh, it was something that's like very uh, actually really important. They, they had two pretty important things in the credit sequences of these movies and uh, the first being where we have the return of J. Jonah Jameson who is now I guess uh, running his own InfoWars type of uh, uh, type of show or I, I don't, that might be a little harsh because I guess it is like a Daily Bugle show I suppose but uh, he's there and he's uh, kind of retelling the story of what happened with Mysterio, and I guess it, I guess it's kind of implied that Mysterio's uh, henchman kind of downloaded some of that footage onto a flash drive, and that's how it got to him. Because you see the guy like taking it out, and I'm like, oh. And then so they kind of frame it where it's like, oh, maybe like Peter like wasn't like so innocent in this whole thing. But uh, the the bigger I guess that's a little beside the point. Even if it, that stuff is framed to make Mysterio look like a sympathetic character, it's more that like they reveal uh, his identity. So. Um, you know, like earlier in this movie, like we didn't even talk that much, I guess, about the earlier setup before they set off on the trip, other than to say that he's a little torn as to how he's going to handle these responsibilities. But he's already finding it a lot to be a celebrity with the mask on. And now he's going to have to deal with this going forward. What did you think of them deciding to uh, have that happen in the credits of this movie? 
So I think that Mysterio, I mean, what, one of the things we have to realize, Mysterio was not just uh, Quinton Beck's invention. It was that entire team's invention. So clearly there was going to be a fail-safe plan if their, um, you know, the entire thing failed. And obviously Peter Parker didn't necessarily know the just the intricate elements. So while, of course, um, Quentin Beck is dead, the rest of the team is still very much alive. So, of course, they were going to end up having their backup plan in order to keep the memory of Mysterio and all they worked on um, alive and maybe, you know, causing some sort of gratification for them on like a grander scale. But the the fact that they went so far as to completely mask what actually happened to put Peter Parker, I'm sorry, Spider-Man into the firing line and then to reveal his identity as Peter Parker. It was just, I need to figure out why. And of course the next movie is going to uncover that, but they're, they're, they could have just done one thing at a time. They did not need to reveal his identity as Peter Parker. I have no idea what that's going to do. Maybe it's going to eventually lead into a universe um, where we kind of tie into Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, where Peter Parker is, you know, very well recognized as being Spider-Man and he's, um, you know, a born here into the community. Maybe we've already seen his future. And this is just one hurdle in his way because his identity being revealed doesn't necessarily make him, um, you know, any more or less favored. But the fact that they end up posing him as the villain in this sequence is going to be something that they're going to need to combat. We have no idea how it's going to happen. We have no idea if there's going to be other, um, you know, villains that are coming into play because if they just redo the same thing, it makes no sense. But the fact that they ended up bringing, um, and I'm trying to remember his name for the life of me, um, the guy who plays J. Jonah Jameson. Oh, J.K. Simmons. Thank you. Um, the fact that they brought him back. And I, I think that there was a lot of hesitancy with recasting this role because you can't. It is literally so perfect that they started redrawing the character to look like J.K. Simmons. I think that that was just a nice little. Um, oh, I, didn't, know, I, I didn't know they had done that. That's interesting. You didn't know that they started redrawing the yeah, character yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, like it already looked a lot like him, but they oh, started okay. like, same, same exact reason why they did the same thing with Nick Fury. Nick Fury is actually Samuel L. Jackson's likeness. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah, they did that because, it, like, sometimes someone's just so perfect for the role that the you know artists wanted to make sure that they sort of encapsulated it in a way. But um, so that that was very well done. Um, I, I don't know where they're going to lead with that. I honestly, I'm still in a state of shock that that is how they decided to um, reveal it. But let's think about it in this way. Um, Tony Stark ends up revealing himself as Iron Man at the end of the first Iron Man movie. Who's to say that this isn't going to be another call to action for Peter Parker? And the only thing that he needs to overcome is the fact that, you know, people now think of him as the aggressor behind the London attacks and behind the Venice attacks and everything else that happened with the elementals. So that's going to be a difficult thing to prove. It's probably going to reveal who S.H.I.E.L.D. is slightly. I, I mean, there's going to be a lot involved with it. But I think at the end of the day, it definitely sets up for a third movie. And that's all we have to really think about. Yeah, so I mean, that, before I ask you about the MCU going forward, which I mean, well, I guess this ties into it, but well, I'll, I'll ask you about the last credit scene uh, because you – you you find out that uh, I guess for the whole movie we thought we think we're watching uh, Maria Hill and Nick Fury and the whole time it's the scrolls who I, I finally just looked up I mean I, we knew Talos because uh, he we spent a lot of time with him in Captain Marvel but I guess his partner is Soren or his wife or whoever she is that's her name Soren so they have been actually there in place of uh, Samuel L. Jackson and Kobe Smolders and doing their uh, their transformations where they can uh, be turn into different people and they, they were just doing that the whole time and we see that Nick Fury is actually out on a ship with the scroll I guess still looking for a new home for them I don't know if Carol Danvers is up to doing that for them or what he's doing but he's hanging out with them on their ship so there's, there's speculation um, after Captain Marvel there was speculation that there is really an undetermined period of time that Talos may have been um, posing as Nick Fury so it probably might have happened before could have been happening for a while. Hmm. But the the reason why people think that that could have been happening is because Nick Fury being the most dangerous man and the most, you know, really the most dangerous human being without any superpowers that probably has ever existed on that earth, he is doing more important Avenger-style, you know, outer-worldly things on a ship with the other scroll, and he's probably working with Captain Marvel there. 
that's where he's more needed. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a soldier. He's, he's, he's necessary there, but he, he never outwardly outright says it. No one ever really, you know, kind of confirms it until that after credit scene. So now you think in your head, how many times was Nick Fury actually there throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or was it Talos pretending to be him? Right, because I guess the whole thing. Uh, yeah, I, I, if I guess I forgot for a second that Captain Marvel's a period piece. So like that. Yeah. <laughs> who know? Who knows? I guess for the last like twenty years or something in this world, twenty five years they've been maybe just flying around looking for a new planet for them or something like that. So who or knows? Something more, else. More of that will probably be like uh, filled in, I guess, in uh, Captain Marvel too. But like you know, as of right now, I don't know if there's like a. It's not like a, I don't know if there's like a definitive release date for the next movie. Is there like if you? Um, I don't know honestly. Yeah, I, so. I know that they have speculative dates, like approximate time periods and years. But I think that it, that's definitely going right. to be revealed in okay. Captain Marvel too. I'm watching Maybe Wikipedia. Going- yeah, I'm looking at Wikipedia now, which, as I always say, we know it's true because it's on Wikipedia. Uh, they have yeah. they have scheduled release dates for May first and November sixth, two thousand twenty. So maybe we don't actually have to wait quite as long as I thought. I actually found yeah. out when I was just clicking around on IMDb yesterday that the Black Widow movie is filming, but there's like a really good chance that like that's going to be a prequel. And uh, we've already discussed that. I mean, there is no, there's no shame in them not end up doing that as a prequel leading into Dark Avengers. Yeah, so like, I guess there's a way in which it's not, and so that, I guess that, that's what I want to ask you because there's a chance it is, there's a chance it isn't. Because there's, as we know in this world, there are plenty of ways in which uh, Natasha is is not dead. You know, like uh, they, 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 it doesn't have to be a prequel, but there's that. I guess they've started doing the Eternals movie. I don't know how well versed you are in that stuff. I don't really know anything about it with Angelina Jolie, so that'll be something. Uh, and maybe that's what, maybe it's like Black Widow is the May one next year and that's the November one next year. So I actually hadn't looked at these dates till we just started, until just a few seconds ago. So I guess there's still always going to be a couple movies in 2020 and a couple in 2021 if they keep these dates. But, you know, it's interesting, like they, whether it be with that last credit sequence, like we know at some point there's going to be like a, a Black Panther 2, a, a Guardians 3, a Captain Marvel 2. Uh, maybe another Doctor Strange movie. So we have all these people just kind of floating, floating out there. Like you know, there's Thor hanging out with the Guardians people. Like Wakanda's doing its own thing, and we know that movie's coming at some point. Who knows exactly what direction they're going to take that in? Uh, the Guardians will probably be doing something in space. Captain Marvel's probably going to be somewhere in space dealing on other planets. Like, do you have any kind of vision at this point? Is it still this Dark Avengers thing that you think is like the next direction it should go in, or has the end of what we saw at the end of? Um, far from home giving you any other ideas for where you want to see this whole thing go now because we're at a very interesting point in the mcu well yes yeah. so if we're moving more towards space it means we're moving more towards the potential that galactus is going to be at the big bad and galactus is known as probably the most powerful tied with um, you know, Thanos with an Infinity Gauntlet um, villain in the Marvel Universe. Mm. Um, I mean, Adam Adam Warlock is pretty bad also. They already teased him. But if we're going to be going to a Galactus Eater of Worlds sort of, you know, deal, that makes sense that more people are moving towards space. It makes sense why Nick Fury is up there. Um, it makes sense why you have the Asgardians of the Galaxy. I'm still going to use that name. And if they don't make the movie that title, I will... I'm already I'm, I'm pitching for it I'm buying for it I'm contacting you can't give out these ideas for free <laughs> I should give out these ideas for free um, but but if they I mean if they're moving more and more towards space being their kind of next phase it makes complete sense why all those people would be off world and you now have, you know, potential capabilities with Wakanda on um, being able to now go to space now that they sort of met with everybody at Endgame. Maybe they're trading some technology. Maybe they're going to end up making um, appearances there as well. Um, we don't know how this is going to happen, though, because this is completely off script at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, there's very, very few plot lines that they could be probably drawing from. Spider-Man is a little bit, I think, more, you know, obvious in that you have such such good characters throughout the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe that you just don't want to reestablish, especially the Jack Kirby and Stanley, may he rest in peace, um, 
you know, plot lines. But I think that if you're going to be bringing in the same big bads, you might as well steal a couple of things, but add your own spin to it. Um, and I think that it's good that we don't know where that's going to end up leading up because then you're going to have low ticket sales. Yeah, I don't. I, I honestly don't have a ton to add to that. I because you, you know a little bit more about what could possibly be coming. So I was just happy to have you speculate. But it, it's certainly interesting to think about and hear you say that they're they're off script in that manner because it's it's exciting just to kind of know that like hey we're kind of like off to a new frontier here and who knows exactly what's coming. And so even if you know we're not quite locked in like the same very specific like we know this movie's happening then this one's happening then that's one happening then there's something pretty cool and different about the unpredictability of it all which is like while we didn't know what was going to happen in endgame like we knew what that was building towards so it's, it's cool just to be in this point where it's like now that i've seen these other release dates i'm like all right we might have four of these still in the next uh 30 months or something and like they could still take it in any pot any number of directions so uh, that's pretty exciting. Uh, Maya, any final thoughts on Far From Home before we sign off? I'm very sad that this is the first movie that we didn't see a Stan Lee cameo. That, that, that is true. I guess that we're going to hit that point at some point. I, I don't remember exactly what day he died on last year, but I guess he might have had a little bit of a health decline, unfortunately, by, mm-hmm. by the time they were filming this movie. So would have been a little not feasible, but it, that, that, that is noticeable and very sad. So do you have anything else you want to say so we don't end on such yeah, a sad I was, note? <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to, I wanted to give it its own moment because I thought it was very pertinent to bring up. Um, I think at the end of the day, but like I said, from the beginning, Spider-Man is meant to be a little bit more happy, go lucky, comedic, sing songy. They did such a good job with it. And I just think that Tom Holland is the perfect Spider-Man. He has everything going for him. He's got such a bright career ahead of him. He's ridiculously talented. He can play into every single element that is necessary for for Spider-Man and for Peter Parker. And just the scene of Happy watching him kind of go a little crazy over the mechanics behind the Spidey suit on the, the, um, the aircraft before they end up saving the day. It was very Tony Stark, and it clearly proves that he is meant to you know possess the edith system that he is the next iron man he just he's got a couple of years on him but man oh man am i excited for what they have next for him yeah so very exciting and oh uh, i don't want to make you choose between your favorite children but is uh is uh (laughs) spider-man into the spider-verse still the best superhero movie of all time hell yeah it is okay i didn't know i I didn't know endgame was good but that movie was beautiful Yeah, I think it's. I think it might have gone to Netflix now, so people can go. Uh, it is on Netflix. So, I've already seen it. <laughs> oh, there, there you go. Uh, I, I saw it twice in theaters, but but in anticipation of doing the podcast again. But I was. Um, uh, I might have actually just seen it after we did the podcast. This, yeah, I think I saw my second video. I just went again because I had a friend that hadn't seen. So after we did the podcast on that one, I'm like, all right, I'll go again, um, and, I'll, and I'll probably I go watch it again on Netflix because it is really good. I bet I, there'll be another one of those. I pretty much peer pressure all of my friends to watch it. And every single time that they happen to be around, I'll just sit down and watch it with them. I'd be like, wow, I didn't notice that the first time around. Because there's so many elements to that movie that are so good. Well, it certainly deserves the attention. That's for sure. Maya doesn't usually have anything to plug. But Maya, I'll say thank you for joining me. And because we have so long before another Marvel movie comes back, uh, you'll have to uh, make a return for maybe an Oscar movie or something like that, like you did for A Star is Born last year. Because I know you do try and make it a point to see all that stuff. And uh, if there's anything else that comes up uh, that is up your alley in in, in that manner, we'll have to get you back. Because, you know, like we said... It looks like there might be more of these Marvel movies at some point, but like they're going to be a little less frequent, I think, going forward, which is which is fine. But we like having Maya here, so might just have to find a couple non-Marvel things for her to come back for. Uh, Star Wars. Yeah. In the meantime, we have a lot of other movies coming up on the podcast, and uh, you can check those out uh, as usual. I'm at Josh Jernavoy on Twitter and Letterbox J O S H J U R N O V O Y. But I'll be tweeting out any other podcast from the podcast Twitter account rewind movie pod so you can follow there we'll have a, a podcast coming out, out on midsummer a very different kind of movie from this one and uh i guess next weekend we have crawl which is uh very uh i don't want to say on brand but it's i guess somewhat up my alley i think our friend daniel might be joining us for that because it's uh florida hurricane alligator movie type of thing so uh very weird the movie and, was written by a florida state fan and i'm not gonna let anybody convince me otherwise Ooh, okay yeah so uh We'll uh, cross that bridge uh, next week on the podcast. So we got that, and we got uh, Lion King coming up the week after that. So still plenty of big summer movie stuff coming up. Stay tuned for that. Thanks again to Maya. We'll see you next time.